0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. COVID cases rising around the world have us more eager than ever for a therapeutic or vaccine. The CEO of drugmaker Merck, Ken Frazier, says it might be a while.
1: As it relates to the vaccines, given the timetable now, we don't yet have data. I would say that There's no way that we can think that they would be broadly available before mid-2021, but I'm optimistic that they will be available at that time.
0: Tech CEOs returned virtually to Capitol Hill yesterday. Did conservatives make the case against Silicon Valley monopolies? Former Obama White House official, Anish Chopra.
2: As to the public policy risk that they're gonna be regulated coming out of this, the probability didn't really move if anything it probably weakened it
0: those stories plus wall street's worst sell-off in months
3: is it better to really scare people on monday to make a bottom (laughs) the 1900 doesn't feel as bad to me
4: no it doesn't
0: it's thursday october 29th, 2020 squawk pod begins right now
4: good morning everybody Welcome to Squawk Box. This is CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. If you look at the damage from this week, the Dow is actually down more than 6% just for the first three sessions this week. It's on pace for its worst weekly performance since late March. The index, of course, lost more than 1,800 points just since the selling began on Friday.
3: I was coming in thinking, you know, Monday, I was worried about that, like, at 1,800 or 1,900 Points off. Remember when that happened last time with COVID, COVID resurgence? It was, I don't know, about three months ago. We had come back a lot from the March lows, but we're still very, you know, there's a lot of trepidation, a lot of concern. And in one day it did that. And so I was worried about that on on Monday, because that's where you really feel sick, where it's down a thousand and and it came back, was down 650. But then here we are. Took two more days, but we basically got there. Yeah. Yeah, we basically got there at 1800. So I'm trying to figure out, is it better To really scare people on Monday to make a bottom, because now I, you know, it doesn't feel like to me (laughs) the 1900 doesn't feel as bad to me as it would have on Monday. No,
4: it doesn't. And I, you know, I I would say, Joe, the one, the one concern about that is if you see a bigger drop faster, you're probably more likely to get attention in Washington and maybe the idea that they would come back and try and deal with the stimulus package faster, because that seems to be the only thing that that those in Washington pay attention to.
3: And you know strict, uh, you know, mandated lockdowns versus people just scared to death. It's not that different. We, you know, we may right. not go the route of root route of, of Europe. Uh, but you know, even if it, you know, so we may, may not have lockdowns, but even if people just rein in their their ability to go to restaurants and everything it, else, with definitely. no stimulus, with no chance of stimulus, because right. it just doesn't look like it, so we're back, back where we were, so or, I think... Or
4: more small business relief. Like, that's the other issue. You know, yeah. they haven't even said okay on the rest of the PPP funds that are out there for the small businesses that are getting hurt so badly.
3: Then in the journal, it was the, one of the main stories yesterday on the front page, there's like eviction hiatuses that, that are expiring and, and none of these people, yep. a lot of these people still don't have jobs or ability to pay rent. So what happens when, when they say, okay, you don't just owe last month, you're behind four months. So you either come or five yep. months or whatever it is. So, I mean, there's a lot still, I don't want to watch in the, the future. I'm going down to zero. That's
5: what they call yeah.
3: it. And I was trying to think of an analogy at the top of the show and it's like, you ever go into, like, it, it, like not swampy land, but, you know, there's just a lot of water, and each step that you take, you're not sure it's going to get into where your socks get wet, and you're sort of just mm-hmm. trying to find something where you can make it where you need to go, but you don't want to really hit the. And that's what I feel like the market is doing, you know, searching for. Soggy ground something to just to to
5: support it let's talk about covid cases because i think that's honestly i think that this this next story about covid cases and where we are is going to be really what ultimately moves the market i think to the point that you were just making joe and becky this is all now a how quickly can we get out of this or are we going to get out of this at uh, the rate that we potentially imagined lockdowns or no consumer confidence or no investors continuing to closely follow the headlines uh on the spike in coronavirus cases. Let's tell you what's going on. The U.S. reported 80,662 infections yesterday. So there's a new infection setting a record high for daily cases for the third time in one week. This was the first time the country has now recorded more than 80,000 cases in one day. Previous high was set last Friday. Here's what White House coronavirus advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci told CNBC's Chip Smith last night.
2: If things do not change, Shep, if they continue on the course we're on, there's gonna be a whole lot of pain in this country with regard to additional cases and hospitalizations and deaths. We are on a very difficult trajectory. We are going in the wrong direction.
0: Other countries are also concerned they're going in the wrong direction in terms of managing the coronavirus pandemic. In France, President Macron has announced a second lockdown beginning Friday to stem the diseases spread across the country. Germany has also announced a second lockdown amid rising COVID cases there. And Spain and the UK are also seeing upticks in COVID-related hospitalizations. The primary hope for those under renewed lockdown is an effective vaccine or a therapeutic drug. Currently, pharmaceutical companies like Gilead, Pfizer, Eli Lilly, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and Merck are all working on developing drugs to treat or prevent COVID-19. But it still seems like there's a long way to go. Pharma companies, in addition to their work fighting this pandemic, are focused on next week's presidential election. Like everybody else, a pandemic, an election, market volatility, just another day
5: in the C-suite. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joining us right now is Ken Frazier, chairman and CEO of Merck. And also with us is Jeff Sonnenfeld, senior associate dean for leadership studies at the Yale School of Management and a CNBC contributor. Good morning uh, to both morning. of you, gentlemen. Uh, Ken, I, I want to start with you, and I, I want to talk about the, the voting uh, efforts in just a moment. But given that we're watching this, this steady rise of COVID cases across the country and, frankly, the globe right now, and we're watching the markets sell off in large part because of that, I, I wanted to get a sense from you of how you're thinking, Ken, about The timeline with which we may get a vaccine uh, and some of the efforts that you're undertaking in terms of therapeutics and the like, in terms of your your partnership with Ridgeback uh, for uh, what could be an oral therapeutic, which I think has uh, a lot of people
1: are hoping has uh, lots of promise. Good morning, Andrew, and thanks for having me. Let me start by saying there are a lot of companies in our industry working on different approaches to vaccines and we've heard some good, as well as therapeutics, and we've heard some good news recently from Regeneron, from Eli Lilly, Uh, we are awaiting news from Pfizer, AstraZeneca, J&J and others, Moderna and others. So I'm very optimistic uh, that in the near future, we will find some of these studies about some of these vaccines and therapeutics are going to be uh, positive. Uh, I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, As far as what Merck is doing is, let me start with the antiviral. As you know, uh, we are going into phase two, three uh, with our um, uh, direct acting oral antiviral uh, product uh, that's a partnership with Ridgeback. And what we know so far about that drug is very encouraging. We know that uh, at concentrations that seem to be safe, that it prevents viral uh, replication. Uh, And so now the question is, in a large study of 2,700 people, can we show that it actually has an effect on sickness and death, morbidity and mortality? And we're very optimistic about that. Behind that, we actually have two vaccines, one of which has gone into human testing uh, based on our measles virus vector. And again, the goal there is to have a vaccine that can provide durable protection with a single dose. And right behind that is another vaccine based on uh, our vesticular stomatitis virus vector, which is the one that we used in Ebola. So we're very optimistic about Merck. Uh, Our goal at Merck is to produce medicines that can have an enduring impact on this, uh, not just in the pandemic phase, but also in the endemic phase.
5: So Ken, just help us. If we were all looking at a calendar, and I know it's hard to prognosticate, but when, when, when you talk to family even about your expectations, about what the world looks like six months out from now, 12 months out from now, are you, when are you expecting a vaccine will be on the market, not necessarily yours? And, and when are you expecting, I mean, we can talk about uh, the, the, Ridgeback, uh, the, the Ridgeback product because that's something that could be terrific if you could just walk into a CVS or, or, or Walgreens and, and
1: get it if, in fact, you were, you, you were to be COVID positive. So starting with the antiviral, we think we'll have at least some interim data on that in early 2021. And we're already spooling up to make millions and millions of doses and by early next year, much more. So I think if the antiviral works, particularly if it's a capsule, it's an oral that you can take over five days, you can then use it more readily with people. They don't have to be in the hospital. You can use it hopefully earlier in the disease, and if everything works out, you could even use it prophylactically for those people who would be exposed to people who might have coronavirus. So we're very optimistic about that. We think that could make a very important contribution. As it relates to the vaccines, given the timetable now, we don't yet have data, I would say that there's no way that we can think that they would be broadly available before mid-2021, but I'm optimistic that they will be available at that time. And as far as what i'm telling people you know my own family we usually have a very large thanksgiving dinner uh, we're not going to have that this year uh, we think that's not responsible to bring that many people together uh, when we're seeing a surge of coronavirus right now
5: and and, and then finally and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about voting in just a moment but are you thinking by next summer people are still wearing masks they're not wearing masks there's going to be a real need for the yes. the, for the ridgeback drug there won't be because so many people will have the vaccine
1: how does What does the future look like in your mind? I don't see the therapeutics that we have or the vaccines that are coming as a silver bullet. I think for the foreseeable future, uh, we're still going to have to practice basic mask wearing, social distancing, hygiene. I think that's with us for a while. And I would say certainly well into 2021, we'll still be uh, trying to observe these public health measures. Uh, I'm very optimistic that we're going to have therapeutics and vaccines. I think it's a mistake to tell people, though, that it's a silver bullet. And overnight, we're going to be able to vaccinate enough people, treat enough people. The the natural history of these viruses is that they don't go away. We still vaccinate people for measles because measles are still around. So I don't think we should tell people that they can expect to give up on those public health measures uh, anytime soon.
5: Jeff, I want to bring you into the conversation and pivot a little bit of the discussion to Election Day. We are just five days away. And one of the things that's been remarkable to watch over the past month, uh, something that you've been chronicling and supporting in large part behind the scenes, has been an effort by Corporate America to help their employees get time off. Uh, Ken doing it uh, at Merck to to go and vote. Uh, you've, You've said that democracy is at stake here Speak to what's happening.
6: Uh, Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Usually when I come on and and have the honor of joining you guys on the show, my goal is to not start too much of a food fight at at this hour over breakfast. Uh, In this case, my goal is to try to stay out of Ken Fraser's way. I'm sure, like many, are wondering, what's this guy doing on with Ken Fraser's model? And then the, the segue that you suggest right there actually is a perfect one because where Ken just took us in talking about, in very realistic terms, where we're going in terms of virology and and, uh, and therapeutics is so realistic. Talking about the middle of next year, uh, we had uh, a great model that Ken has set uh, with his peers in in the pharma industry, and nine of them, of course, signing this uh, this incredible statement that we're not going to be rushed by politics at a time where um, we're candidly just between us, the president was saying in Labor Day there could be some magic bullet out on that very special day of November third. Ken and Alex Gorsky of of, of Johnson, Johnson and Johnson uh, and and their peers said, "No, we're not going to rush things. We're going to let the science dictate things. Not be have political intervention. That kind of leadership is is the gold standard that, that that again Ken and his peers stand for. And we're seeing that when we look at this coming day, election day, it's not just the pharma companies that are saying we have to watch for politics having a poisonous effect. Is that we have seen a remarkable." Degree of, uh, of of CEO encouragement of public public-minded spiritedness that that volunteerism to be uh, we have a, of close to three thousand employers have almost a million employees out there volunteering as poll workers and and of course getting the day off to vote it's just remarkable responsibility that we're seeing and again Ken's the gold standard of sparking these these kinds of initiatives Ken why do you think this is happening now well first of all I think we have to take uh, a step back and
1: realize that this is an election that is being conducted in the midst of a public health crisis, the coronavirus crisis. And so tens of millions of people will be voting in a different way this election, uh, through mail. Uh, And I think what we have to do as a business community, uh, as well as everyone, the media, and anyone else who is privileged to hold a position of public trust and influence, is to encourage people to vote, but also to encourage them to respect the integrity and legitimacy of the actual process. Uh, Because of the way in which the election is being conducted right now, it's very likely that we won't know the outcome in some states on election night. And so it's important to encourage people to have the patience, the civility, and the restraint uh, to actually wait for the outcome of the election and to trust the process.
5: How politicized, can I ask, is it inside your own office, Ken, in terms of just the conversations that are taking place between uh, executives and employees and
1: whatnot about politics right now? I don't think it's very politicized inside, Merck. I don't think we have a lot of those conversations. We are totally focused, irrespective of who's elected in uh, November 3rd or thereafter, we're totally focused on the challenges that our country faces right now around For example the coronavirus as well as the underlying issues having to do with patient affordability we want to be able to work with whoever is in office whatever the new congress is whatever the administration is we need to solve the fundamental problems of affordability and access and also have a system that actually encourages investment for future medicines and vaccines that we need for future pandemics for example
3: i want to take it just real quickly while we have ken here i want to take it to to drug prices and, and It pains me to see that I, you don't have a lot of friends left, I, I think, Ken. I, I don't know which side of the aisle you would appeal to for, uh, you know, for logic. It, because I hear worse stuff, I think, coming from uh, from the president's side on, on you know, bringing prices down 70% by re-importing drug controls from Europe. I mean, where do you go? What's going to happen after the election, Ken? It, Who's your friend this time around that understands that pharmaceuticals are probably the best deal in town for dealing with these chronic uh, illnesses?
1: Certainly. So let's start with the WHO recently said that the impact on global GDP from the coronavirus is likely to be $26, $28 trillion. So the reality of the world is that if we're gonna solve not just the pandemic, but the chronic health conditions that you just referred that are costing us so much money, the best solutions are often pharmaceuticals and vaccines. And so I have to believe in the logic of people. I have to believe that people are of goodwill and they want to solve the problem of patient affordability. I think the fundamental problem isn't simply the price of drugs. It's the structure of insurance benefits, it's the middlemen, it's everything in the system that misaligns incentives so that the person at the pharmacy counter isn't getting the benefit of the rebates, for example, that we're paying, which are about 50%. So I have to say uh, that while we don't have a lot of, quote, friends, I think there are a lot of people who want to fix the situation in a way that's good for the country, good for the economy, and good for patients.
3: I just wanted to hear about that because it's, it, it worries so the, me about innovation and everything else, because... Uh, uh, thanks,
6: know. Joe. I was I was just going to reinforce the point uh, anticipating where you might have been going, is that in looking at these time frame issues, unlike some activist investor pressures that have torn apart some other pharma companies, can still, I think, invest 12 to 15 percent of that almost $50 billion in revenues in long-term solutions, but also the CEO engagement so critical for public trust All these virus uh, remedies that come out there, whether or not they're the therapies or the vaccines, don't matter if people aren't going to take them. And we have seen since April, the public trust has so collapsed the support for taking these vaccines. It was roughly 75 percent back in April, 72, 75 percent. It's fallen now, according to Morning Consult, to less than 40 percent. And public trust, again, spilling into next week's elections. Uh, An overnight survey just done last night by Morning Consult tells us Most of the nation, 62% of the nation, is afraid the Supreme Court may have to intervene to select the president. And they're very worried about that. And they're looking to CEOs like Ken and others uh, to uh, announce, uh, that use their voices to bring calm. Uh, So in fact, I think it was 72% over, over last night have told us of American voters, they want CEOs' voices involved. And sure enough, what did we see yesterday but we saw the Business Roundtable, the National Association of Manufacturers, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and five other diverse business groups unify, and it's not usually what they do, and t- with a very loud statement saying, we believe in a, a peaceful transfer of power, and, uh, and we're hoping for that, and to have calm through Election Day. And as Ken said, wait till all the ballots are counted, that, it's, that given the surge of, uh, of, 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 of voters that we have this year on top of the, uh, the mail-ins, It's going to take a while to count the ballots and we we always wait till after election day but unfortunately the president and 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 justice kavanaugh also have recently said it all has to be November 3rd or it's going to look like manipulation Uh,
5: ken let me ask you a question well as we've been doing this interview i just got an email from a viewer uh effectively making a critique suggesting that the efforts by corporate america to um, to encourage voting is not a, a politically agnostic act uh, that the conversation around a peaceful transfer of power is not a politically agnostic act in large part because the president president Trump has uh, made noises about uh, whether the the, the the vote is going to be is rigged or uh, or other things like that. And in fact, that the efforts by corporate America are really an anti
1: uh, President Trump effort. What, what do you tell that viewer? See, I think that comment is reflective of the sad situation we have in our country where everything is politicized. I think this issue around the process goes beyond personalities. It goes beyond parties. It's our birthright as a nation to actually have free and fair elections. Going back to the Declaration of Independence, we say that the just powers of the government are derived from the consent of the governed, and that consent is actually expressed through free and fair elections. This is what we were taught in civics, and it's unfortunate that people see every one of these things through a political lens. From my perspective, this is really about our birthright as American citizens, and frankly, the fact that we have been for many, many years a model of what it means to have a representative democracy for the rest of the world.
6: We've always had the ballot counts, too, for Uh, military ballots and and provisional ballots have always been counted after Election Day. And there are several states, uh, Colorado and I think, you know, eight or or so states that are fully uh, mail-in ballots. It takes a while, of course, to to get them all counted. I think it was Einstein who said that physics is easy, it's politics that's complicated. Uh,
5: Gentlemen, Ken and Jeff, we want to thank you uh, both for joining us. Uh, Ken, thank you for helping us uh, through all of uh, these issues around COVID. And, of course, uh, to both of you gentlemen uh, for getting out the word on voting. We appreciate it very, very much. Thank you,
1: Andrew. I'm optimistic about coronavirus and I'm optimistic about our democracy.
5: Thank you.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, a Senate committee questioned the CEOs of Facebook, Google, and Twitter on competitiveness and content moderation. Former White House Chief Technology Officer Anish Chopra says it was all politics.
2: The hearing itself wasn't designed to foster more cooperation and learning, unlike the House Antitrust hearing last month, where I think we learned a lot as a country about how the platforms operate.
0: We'll be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod.
5: Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan.
4: Today is the busiest day of earnings season. You've got Apple, Amazon, Alphabet and Facebook, the big names to watch. But yesterday, the focus was in Washington with the CEOs of Twitter, Facebook and Alphabet testifying before a Senate panel. Elon Mui joins us right now. She's got the headlines from that. And Elon, this uh, this got pretty heated. Oh yeah, Becky. This
7: was a knockdown drag-out political brawl, and not just between the senators and the CEOs, but also between the Republicans and the Democrats. GOP Senator Ted Cruz threw the most punches primarily aimed at Twitter's Jack Dorsey. He accused the company of trying to censor conservatives when the company restricted tweets around the New York Post story on Hunter Biden.
3: Mr. Dorsey, who the hell elected you? and put you in charge of what the media are allowed to report and what the American people are allowed to hear? And why do you persist in behaving
5: as a Democratic super PAC?
7: Dorsey did defend the company's content moderation policies, but he said the rules still apply to the president.
5: Just to be clear,
6: we we have not censored the president. We have not um, taken the tweets down that you're referencing. Um, They have more context than a label uh, applied to them. And we do the same for leaders around the world.
7: At the same time, Democrats call the hearing a sham and they push the companies to be even more aggressive in policing their own platform and to stand up to Republicans.
3: What we are seeing today is an attempt to bully the CEOs of private companies into carrying out a hit job on a presidential candidate by making sure that they push out foreign and domestic misinformation meant to influence the election.
7: Now, this hearing did not move the ball at all, but it did lay bare some of the bitter politics around this issue heading into the election, and the tech companies were caught in the middle. Becky? Yeah, Elon, um,
4: a tough place to be for any of these guys yesterday, but uh, thank you. Joining us right now is Anish Chopra. He is former White House chief technology officer under President Obama. He's now president of Care Journey And Anish, probably not surprising to see it kind of break out into a fight like this with less than a week ago before the election, but kind of getting through all of the noise, what does this mean for these tech companies after this? They're in a no-win position.
2: Well, you know, uh, Elon was right that punches were thrown, but none of them landed. So they may have been uncomfortable sitting in the room uh, taking some heat, but as to the public policy risk that they're going to be uh, regulated coming out of this, the probability didn't really move. If anything, it probably weakened it because it showed the fissure between the two parties about what reform looks like.
4: I guess it matters a lot who wins the Senate.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are clearly you heard pockets of this in the hearing when there was less uh, temperature, uh, bipartisan efforts around the Honest Ads Act or uh, even the PACT Act, which would basically create some baseline transparency provisions on content moderation. So there were crumbs if you watched to see that there could be a, a deal but the hearing itself wasn't designed to foster uh, more cooperation and learning, uh, unlike the House Antitrust hearing last month, where I think we learned a lot as a country about how the platforms operate. Today or yesterday was mostly about, you know, in my opinion, you know, working the refs uh, in, in advance of the election. Mr. Zuckerberg, are you the ref? Uh,
5: Senator, Senator, I certainly uh, think not. And I do not want us to have to have that role. Mr. Dorsey, are you the ref? No. Mr. Pashai, are you the rev? Uh, Senator, I do think we make content moderation decisions, uh, but we are transparent about it, and we do it to protect users. But we really believe in support maximizing freedom of expression.
4: Look, you, you have a situation, though, with, with, with 230. It makes sense that these companies are no longer just billboards anymore. Right? We're just, you know, posting boards yeah. for things. They, they have gotten involved with moderating discussion. And with trying to set some guidelines, and that does make them much more like a publisher. How how does that not change at some point?
2: Well, there was one exchange in the hearing yesterday. I think it was Senator Cory Gardner. He did get all three platforms to admit content that they generate uh, should be treated like uh, published content. And now the question is, you know, how far can one interpret what that means? Uh, Would uh, support for paid ads uh, be subject to a different standard than perhaps... uh, What you and I might post as individual users. So there was maybe an inkling of how to go forward on uh, balancing what's been the bedrock of internet regulation uh, in the backstop of a real serious problem. I will say we have, uh, you saw the fissure between the platforms themselves. Uh, Twitter clearly on the side of an open internet, focusing on new entrants, lower barriers to entry, and perhaps others in the hearing talking a bit more about. Uh, investing the resources necessary to comply with new regs. And so that may be another thread to look for in the coming months.
4: Yeah, I I would say some of them would clearly like to see new regulations coming so that they don't have to be the ones who are deciding this. Uh, Zuckerberg has said that, and it seemed pretty clear that Sundar Pichai is kind of of the same mindset with that. But uh, look, if if you're talking about regulations not coming, and because because the Democrats and and the Republicans can't agree on this, you are going to continue to see this heat on the companies being brought by certain senators and, and probably higher up than that. And what kind of backlash does that mean for these companies? Even if you don't get regulation that does this, you're going to have a lot of Americans who are mad at them, angry at them and, and potentially don't want to use their services.
2: Yeah, look, to me, and I think we've talked about this before, the industry has very uh, clear opportunities for collaboration on some of these difficult issues, like what to, what's defined as misinformation and how to treat it uh, when it's introduced into the system. So I do think there's a chance to balance uh, the kind of let content moderation flourish as in sort of an open marketplace where you could go from no moderation to AI powered human engineered uh, efforts, but still have some consistency on fake news or a number of other content categories. The industry can do more to self-regulate, and it hasn't stepped up to the level it could, as we've seen in areas like child exploitation, for example, or even on cybersecurity threats, where there's a little bit more of a consensus approach, where it's not my choice versus yours, platform A versus B. Let's together solve something in a more collaborative, multi-stakeholder way. So we can solve this better as an industry. Uh, their willingness to work together is a function of the heat they feel of regulation coming, and we're not there yet.
4: I mean, that's crazy to me, the idea that they can't even agree on child pornography and making sure that they try and get rid of that. That's that's where you lose. On that,
2: child exploitation is the one area where we have an area of collaboration, uh, where the industry does have a common view about what constitutes child porn. And then every platform uh, uses that definition to kind of remove content. So we have models. That's the one positive light in what is otherwise a complicated Uh, Stu, I'm on the side of this is more of a disinformation spreading problem than a conservative silencing problem. Maybe that's an obvious statement coming from me, but that's, if you said, where's the problem, I think it's about election interference and spreading disinformation.
6: We do continue to see um, interference. Um, We recently disclosed actions we took on both uh, Russia and um, actions originating out of Iran.
5: We do continue to see uh, coordinated influence operation attempts. Uh, We've been very vigilant. Uh, We appreciate the cooperation we get from intelligence agencies and as companies we are sharing information. Like Jack and and Sundar, um, we also see uh, continued attempts by by Russia
2: and and other countries, um, especially Iran and China, um, to run these kind of information operations. That is the, the root of the issue. We need more consensus to solve.
4: Anish, thank you. It's good talking to you, and I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon.
2: Thanks for having me.
4: Squawk Pod will be right
0: back. People today can spend half their lives over 50, so it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation.
8: That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for
0: listening to this podcast. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you
8: listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.